0: Hey y'all, welcome to the Marty Smith's America podcast. This is volume 77 and it's one of the most special that we've had throughout the lifetime of the Marty Smith's America podcast. Many of you that are avid listeners know my passion for country music, my passion for country music history, my passion for songwriting, and my admiration for all of those things and how they helped mold me as a person. I grew up in a household with a mom and dad that had an eight-track player, and on that eight-track player, every day were the likes of Willie Nelson, and the Judds, and Reba McIntyre, and Waylon Jennings, and Johnny Cash, and Charlie Pride, and all of those artists in that era that really shaped that era, along with folks like Ray Charles, and other types of music but country music was always a theme that held my house together. It was one of our entertainment outlets that was just always there in the background. My mom was a bit of a musician. She played guitar and sang in church and was our church choir director and played the organ and the piano and I always used to be captivated when my mom would be practicing the song that she was going to sing in church the following Sunday. And music was just always a huge part of our lives. My sister's a brilliant singer. My dad and I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but I remember some of my sweeter memories riding down a road with him, and we'd be in his old Ford Ranger, old blue Ford Ranger he called Little Blue. And man, he was proud of that truck. And he, he, built these, he built these side rails to put on top of the, on the top of the bed. And, and he was just so proud of that. And we'd be working on a farm and we'd get done for the day and hop in the truck and be driving back down 460 towards Parisburg from Newport and always had country music on the radio, always 103.7 in Pulaski, Virginia was the go to station during my youth. And they played Tracy Lawrence and they played Clint Black and they played Garth Brooks and they played Travis Tritt. And that's a class of 89 in Nashville, Tennessee. And that group of men had such an unbelievable impact on me and on my best friends growing up, my teammates in every sport They were the soundtrack of our middle school and high school years. And into college, that end of the 80s, 1990 to 2000 window, those guys were the titans of country music. And I have been fans of all of them for so long. They have different styles and different brands. But every single one of them had such an unbelievable imprint on what country music is and they took what was and they were this linchpin to what is now. They took chances with what country music was. I've wanted to chat in depth with every single one of them for my entire adult life and I actually got that opportunity with one of them last week. I went to the Grand Ole Opry. Travis flew over to Nashville from Hartford And he went to the Grand Ole Opry with me. We had the great opportunity to sit in a room in the Grand Ole Opry with Travis Tritt and dive into all of these questions that I've had for so long. And quite honestly, I had I kind of looked in my peripheral vision over to my left after 45-plus minutes, and I see Travis trying to wrap me up. And it was like, I'm not going to look over there. I'm not going to make eye contact with him because I don't want this to end.
1: I was like giving you like the yellow light. Like, all right, like do a little finger wag. Like, let's, we got to move. He's got a, you know, sound checks and stuff coming up and we got to go Marty. And it was like, I ain't even looking over there.
0: It was remarkable. Everything about this time with Travis Tritt was remarkable. His catalog of songs is one of the best that you will ever find. And, I just tried to top of mind, think about those songs that were so important to me. And whether it's like, just, just listen to this list. Help me hold on. Country club. Can I trust you with my heart? Tell me I was dreaming anymore. Here's a quarter where corn don't grow. Best of intentions. T R O U B L E. Foolish pride. Lord have mercy on the working man. Ten feet tall and bulletproof. Drift off to dream. The whiskey ain't working anymore. And then the unbelievable two tracks that are, I'm going to be somebody, and it's a great day to be alive. Rice cooking. God bless America. I mean, that, that list of songs right there is... I almost said a cuss word. That, that list of songs right there is unbelievable. Every one of them are so important to me. I've studied every one of them so much and I had the opportunity to, to sit down at the grand old Opry and discuss this man's path, this man's memories, what those songs meant to other people of acclaim. And we get into all of that in this interview and it's look, I've been so fortunate and a lot of y'all know that I'm so aware of how cool it is that I got to sit across from some pretty amazing icons of our time. And I, that I, that'll never be lost on me. I still can't believe it. Any of them. I'm a kid from the middle of nowhere. I've been afforded the blessings to, to have these opportunities, but when it comes to being just a fulfilling moment, I don't know that I've ever been more fulfilled by a conversation in my career. And I can't wait for you guys to hear it in just a moment. But before we get to our time with Travis Tritt, uh, look, y'all, it's important to have a clean mouth. You don't want to be malodorous. When you're talking to somebody, you want to make sure that you have fresh breath. want to make sure you have good oral hygiene. And nothing gives you better oral hygiene then Quip. What actually makes a toothbrush better? Industrial strength power? Claims of miraculous trendy ingredients? Multiple modes? If you ask your dentist, they'll tell you this. It's less about the brush and more about how you use the brush. That's why Quip was created by dentists and product designers to focus on what actually matters for your oral health, healthier habits. Quip's sensitive vibrations with a built-in timer Guide gentle brushing for the dentist recommended two minutes with 30 second pulses ensuring an even clean. Quip automatically delivers brush heads to you every three months for clean new bristles right on schedule. Nobody wants that. You know, when your toothbrush gets all filleted, it gets all splayed out. You got and the it looks g- like
1: the gunk on like it around the brush too.
0: It just doesn't work, man. It's just gross. And that's why Quip sends you brand new bristles every three months. Sends you brand new brush heads. You don't even have to think about it. They just show up. The sleek, intuitive design is simple and comes with a travel cap that doubles as a mirror mount. These thoughtful features make brushing something you actually want to do, not have to do, twice a day. Good habits matter to live a healthier life, so help form fresh oral health habits with Quip. Quip starts at just $25, and you'll get your first refill free at getquip.com slash america. This is a simple way to support our show and start brushing better, but you have to get quip. Go to getquip.com slash America to get your first refill free. QUIP.com slash America. And speaking of America, it doesn't get more America than me sitting down with Travis Tread at the Grand Ole Opry. Y'all are going to love this interview. Whether you love country music or not, this one's so good, and the storytelling is so good that you're going to love it no matter whether you love country music or not. But if you're a country music person, man, buckle up, because this is a ride. This is Travis Tripp on Marty Smith's America, and it's so damn cool. Let's just start with the Opry. Uh, what an amazing honor You know, you're 25 years in, 25 plus years in now to being a member. What was it like when you got the call or the information that you were going to be a member? Where
2: were you? Who told you? What do you remember and how'd you react? The first time that I ever played the Grand Ole Opry, uh, I got an offer to play it. And it was the same day as the Charlie Daniels Volunteer Jam, which was being held at that time at the old Starwood Amphitheater here in in, uh, Nashville. I was one of the early, acts. I was brand new, really. And I came over and I played early in the afternoon for the Volunteer Jam and then came over to the Opry. I was backstage with some of the guys in my band and some of the Opry members like... um, uh, Osborne Brothers, Bashful Brother Oswald was backstage playing Dobro, and we're all sitting in a room playing bluegrass backstage. I'm playing banjo, and all of a sudden, I felt somebody tap me on the shoulder, and they whispered in my ear and they said, hey, hey boy, do you know how to play Cripple Creek on that thing? I turned around and looked, it was Roy Ako. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How'd you react? Then? Oh, man, I was just shocked. I was in awe. And I was so afraid when I came to, to Nashville the first time that I was too rock-edged for for this town, and especially for the Opry itself. Um, I didn't think they would ever let me in, and for whatever reason, I found out right then and there that Roy Acuff loved me. He absolutely loved me, and he was the big driver behind me being invited to be a member. First time we played it, Jack Green introduced me and brought me out on stage. And I was only supposed to do, like, two songs. I did the two songs, and the crowd ovation was just huge. you remember what you played? Uh, I know I did Country Club, and I might have done Help Me Hold On. And I'm getting ready to leave the stage after my two songs, and Jack Green comes back out and says, how about one more? So I did another song. And then I got another encore. So I got to play four songs when I was only supposed to play two. But not too long after that, it was um, within a year, year and a half, I got the invitation to join and or be a member. And once again, it was just overwhelming to me because because not only because I thought I would never be accepted here, but also because of the fact that As a kid growing up in Georgia, my dad and I on Saturday nights, whenever the weather would permit, instead of we had a television like everybody else, but on Saturday nights we very rarely turned it on because we'd be watching the Grand Old Opry or listening to the Grand Old Opry on the radio on AM radio WSM. Some of the earliest musical heroes I ever had came from listening to that program, so it's been one of the biggest. I say I say it over and over again. Not one of the biggest honors. It's been the biggest honor of my career, without a doubt, to be a member of the Grand Old Opry.
0: Who were some of those heroes that you and your dad listened to on WSM?
2: Uh, people like Bobby Bear, George Jones, Roy Acuff, Lester Flatner, Earl Scruggs, Bill Monroe. All of those people. I mean, I loved them. I loved them. I loved Johnny Cash, Merle Haggard. I loved all of those people, man, and I heard a lot of them for the very first time. I heard them on that program. A lot of them, even though I was a huge fan, I I had no idea what a lot of them looked like, but I knew what they sounded like. <laughs> and that was that was so cool. How do you describe the
0: opportunity to have such great longevity? Why have you had so much longevity?
2: Man, I I wish I knew, <laughs> to be honest. You know, Anytime an artist is is trying to break into this business, obviously the first thing you want is your big break, your opportunity. Just an opportunity to just show people what you can do. And after that, in my case, and I think in a lot of people's cases, it's okay, now how do I make this last? How can I have a career that just that that is like a George Jones career or a Merle Haggard career or a Johnny Cash career that goes on for 20 30 40 years whatever with all the people that i've talked to about that basically they've all been able to just tell me the same thing and that's just as long as you're going out there and pleasing your fans and and they're the only ones that matter and so much of that goes back to songs too it does it all is about the song every time we go into the studio to record it's all about the song. And that's one of the great things about country music as a whole, Was is it always comes back to the song. Um, and songs being relatable. You know, when I sing songs like Corn Don't Grow or or something like that, I have people that come up to me. I had a guy come up to me a few years ago in a restaurant. He said, man, whenever you sang Corn Don't Grow, he said, I felt like you have been reading my mail because I grew up on a farm and I tried all I wanted to do was just get out of there when I was a kid get away from it and he said now that I've gotten older I there's nothing I would love better than to be able to go back and 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 do the farming thing again so once again songs that are relatable to people that people can latch on and feel like you're expressing their their emotions you're saying in a song, what they're trying to say and what they've want, been wanting to say. Um, anytime that you can do that, that's that's what we're in this business for, I think. You
0: said there a moment ago that when you get to town, all you want is that big break. You yeah. need that break.
2: What what was yours? Actually, I was lucky. Before I ever came to Nashville, I met a guy down in uh, in Marietta, Georgia, that worked for a uh, electrical company. There was a talent contest. Marlboro Cigarettes, back in those days, sponsored a Marlboro Talent Roundup. You had to send a professional tape in. If you won or if you got nominated based off that tape, then you get to perform in the competition. If you win the competition, you get to open for any one of the artists that they had on their tour. And that was, back in those days, it was Randy Travis, The Judds, Exile. Ronnie Millsap, big name. Ballers. You know? Exactly. So I didn't have, first of all, I didn't have any money. Second of all, I didn't have any contacts with anybody that was doing, um, that had a studio. And this guy, this buddy of mine, Randy Rabinowitz, that had worked at an electrical company, he said, man, I'm wiring up a studio for a guy at his house. And he said, I'm sure as a favor to me, he would probably let you come in and record two or three songs for that thing. Turned out the guy was named was Danny Davenport. He was a promotion man for Warner brothers records. And so we ended up making an album over the course of the next year and a half. We made an album in that studio and we all learned as we go, you know, (laughs) we, we, uh, uh, when we first started, none of us knew how to even turn the machines on, you know? And, so it took us a year and a half to make that album. But when we got it done, without me really knowing about it, Danny took the tapes and flew to Warner Brothers headquarters in Burbank, California, and presented that album to Mo Austin and Lenny Warneker, who were the uh, presidents of, of uh, Warner Brothers at the time. And they both said, man, we'd sign that guy on the spot. But he's obviously a country music artist, so we need to send you back to Nashville to get them enthused and, and excited about it. So we brought it back to Nashville, played it for the president of Warner Brothers at the time, and he didn't hear it. He, he Really? He didn't like it. And so I wasn't there. I wasn't privy to the conversation, but I was told by people that were privy to the conversation that it went something like this. The president's out in Burbank. Told the president in Nashville, if you don't sign him, we will sign him out here, and we'll do the same thing with him that we did with Dwight Yoakam. We'll promote him out of Burbank, and we'll put him out opening for some of the other more like rock acts that we've got, and we'll do it from that end. So I got signed but I got signed under duress really and yeah. a, a three singles deal and basically that means if you if you don't have they're going to release three singles on you and if one of those three singles doesn't go top 10 you're done so my first single was a song called Country Club in August we released it in August of 89 and not only did it go top 10 but it became the largest selling country music singles that Warner Brothers Records had ever released at that point. Yeah. Your very first cut. Very first
0: cut. That's so cool. Very first cut.
2: (laughs) So I was lucky in that regard. I was lucky that first of all I got signed to the first record label that I was presented to. Um, And then second of all I was very fortunate that my first single was such a big hit. So many of your
0: songs just like are Travis Tripp. Right? They just yeah. are. They're just your sound. They're your way. I don't feel like many artists throughout time have been able to be the artist that they wanted to be. I don't, I don't even know if, if if sometimes maybe you couldn't. What's the challenge of being the artist that you want to be?
2: Well, I had to fight to be the artist that I What was that to fight? Be. The fight was the first two singles that I released, Country Club and then I'm Going to Be Somebody. And then, uh, and even the third single, uh, which was, uh, Help Me Hold On. Uh, I'm gonna be somebody, number one record. Help me hold on, number one record. Man, I was, I was thinking everything is beautiful, you know? Yeah, this, this is easy. This is great. This is easy. <laughs> and then I got to my fourth single, which was a song that showed a different side of my background and my influence song called Put Some Drive in Your Country yeah. and it had screaming guitars on it and it was more of a throwback to the other stuff that I, I love first love always has been straight ahead country traditional country but I also loved the blues I loved Southern Rock Leonard Skinner the Allman Brothers yeah, man. Marshall Tucker Marshall band Tucker. Yeah. absolutely Charlie Daniels loved those people so I wanted to not often but at least a couple of cuts on every album. I wanted to show that side. And as soon as I released that song, man, I mean I started getting pushback from not only from country radio, oh that's too rock, we can't play that to uh people in the industry in Nashville that just basically said, Ah oh, man, that's that guy's he's not he's not what we're looking for. He's not country. And I, I couldn't understand how they were saying that because, you know, the songs that I've been releasing up to that point were just country as dirt. And if you listen to my album, those albums were all country as dirt. So um, I started getting a lot of, of negative press and a lot of negative comments that I heard whispered around all over this town. And I was actually starting to get a little bit upset and uh, more more depressed than upset because I thought, you know, I just don't understand this. And it was right after that that I met Waylon Jennings. And Waylon Jennings, I met him backstage at a show that we happened to be on together. Actually, that Jerry Glanville, oh, the yeah. old coach of the Falcons, booked for us in at the Omni in Atlanta. And I met Waylon backstage, and as soon as we met, he said, sit down in that chair right there. Hey, Hoss. Yeah, hey, Hoss. Sit down in that chair right there. I'll talk to you for a minute. Okay. And he said, listen, I've been hearing all this stuff that they're saying about you. He said, just remember, every single thing that they've been saying about you is exactly the same things that they said about me and about Willie and about Johnny Cash and about all these different, Hank Jr., all these other people. He said, don't let it bother you. Don't let it worry you. He said, fans still coming to your shows? I said, yes, sir. He said, they still on their feet the whole time that you're out there playing? Yes, sir. He said, that's all that matters. These people, they don't matter. They don't matter. The people that sit out there and pay tickets to come see you perform, and the people that go out and spend their hard earned money to buy your albums and buy your music, he said, that's the only people you have to, you have to worry about pleasing. He said, the rest of them, don't worry about them. And I stopped worrying about it at that point and just went out and did exactly what he said. Just focus on the, on the audience and focus on the response and delivering to the, to my audience what I know they want to hear. One
0: of my questions was about his influence on you because I've read a ton about both of you. He's one of my greatest heroes. Like, what a badass! Oh yeah, in every way. Oh, and yeah. and that answers it to a degree. But but how do you define his presence?
2: He was just one of those guys. You know, he he was going to do things one way and one way only, and that was his way. And he didn't care. And he shook this whole town up when he first got started. I say when he first got started. He shook this whole town up after he had had a certain amount of success, and then when the Outlaws thing started breaking um, with him and Willie, the first platinum album that was ever seen in this town in Nashville came from Waylon, Willie, Tom Paul Glacier, and... uh, Jesse Coulter. Jesse Coulter, the Outlaws. Wanted the Outlaws. When that happened, Waylon came in. That was at a time when... Record labels, they did. They owned your masters. They owned you as an artist. They owned your masters forever. So, in other words, even if you wrote it and you went in the studio and you produced it or whatever, they had full ownership of that forever. And Waylon came in, and when they wanted him to re-op at uh, RCA, he basically... He got Well, first of all, he got a great lawyer, a great lawyer that had been working with Fleetwood Mac and a bunch of other people in the rock world and basically came in and turned everything on its ear and said, the only way you're going to get him is if he owns his master's. And from that day forward, he owned all of his master's. He had full control of every aspect of his career. And without even realizing it, I think, he was just doing that at the time because that's that's how he was. That's what he wanted to do. But he opened up so many doors for people like me that were a little bit different too and made it easier for guys like me to still be successful in this town and still be accepted in the country music world. Uh, he just broadened everything out for everybody.
0: I, I follow you on all social media and I swear you're in a different town every night and have been for like 14 straight years, bro. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't know how you have that kind of energy and that kind of sustenance. What's that tell you about your influence that people are showing up and selling out everywhere?
2: Well, first of all, it tells me about my energy that I do it because I love it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't be out here um uh, burning up the roads and doing 130 something shows a year. Number one, if I didn't have an audience that was still out there that wanted to hear me. And second of all, if I didn't love it to the core. I mean, I am I feel like every day that I have won the lottery because I get to do for a living what I would do. Don't tell my manager this, but what I would do if nobody paid me a dime. You know, I just I love it. I love doing it. There's nothing more. Thrilling for me. It's, it's, it's like a drug. Uh, there's nothing more, nothing like that feeling that you get of walking out on a stage and having thousands of people sing every word of every song back to you. They're on their feet for most of the show. They're cheering. They're, they're just, just into it. They're into the moment. And for me as an artist, there's nothing that will ever beat that. And as far as from the, from the fan standpoint, I hope that what that means is the fact that even though I've gone for long periods of time without releasing new music or putting new things out there, people have not forgotten. And the cool thing for me is the fact that as I've gotten older, a lot of the audiences have gotten younger. A lot of them I found out growing up they were exposed to my music when when they were very young yep. because their parents listened to yep. it, you know. So it's just—I mean, it's it's one of those things that doesn't show any signs of, of slowing down anytime soon. And as long as as I'm healthy and feeling good, and and I am, uh, and as long as they want me out there, I'll keep delivering.
0: And and again, it goes back to songs in a lot of ways. Yeah. I marvel at your catalog. I mean, it's just, I've said it on television more times than I can count on radio, on our podcast. It's just forever. And I saw this list recently that one of the, one of the sites here in Nashville put out of your top 10 singles and I'm going to be somebody wasn't even on that list. I know. And I went, what in the Sam hell? <laughs> like what? That song is so special to me because in a lot of ways I see myself in it. Sure. Even though, you know, I'm not Bobby and I'm not playing, I'm a kid that grew up on a cattle farm right. who had a dream in Appalachia, and I get the opportunity to present in front of millions of people all there the time. There Right? That's there the story. Absolutely. Of all those stories, tell me I was dreaming. Anymore. On and on and on. Can I trust you with my heart? Let's go on the way down line. <laughs> What's the song? I know it's
2: like choosing a kid. I it is. It, it's like asking me which one of my kids I like the best. I, I guess I would have to – if I had to gauge them – or rank them, I would have to do it based on the crowd response to it. So, for the longest time, it was any more. I think not only because of the song, but I, I think also because of the of the video that we did for so that. So good, man! Because it was, it gave me an introduction to all of the veterans' issues that we deal with in this country, Mac. Exactly. Yeah, Max Singleton was the character that I played who was a perfectly normal, healthy young man and went to war and was injured and came home in a wheelchair and felt very uncomfortable because he felt that he was half the man that he he was before. And by doing that video, that gave me the opportunity to start working with a lot of veterans organizations. I, I, I saw how moving it was. We, we filmed that down in Murfreesboro at a, uh, uh, the Alvin C. York Veterans Clinic down there. And everybody in the video, with the exception of myself and about four other people, were actually veterans. They were either veterans that were patients at that hospital or they were veterans that were uh, staff members. And so I was so afraid that they weren't going to accept me because I never served. I was afraid that they were going to look at me and say, who does this guy think he is trying to play one of us when he's never served? And when we started, as soon as we walked in and sat down in that wheelchair with all the cameras around, I found myself surrounded by all these veterans that were in that clinic. And they didn't hate me at all. As a matter of fact, they were glad that somebody was there to tell their story. That moved me. It touched my heart, and it touched me so much that a few weeks later, when we finished the editing up on the video, we brought it back to that same veterans clinic to debut it for the world. All the press and stuff were, was there, but that wasn't the thing I was focused on. I was focused on debuting it in front of all these veterans that had helped us make it possible. As a result, I had the wonderful opportunity to serve as the celebrity chairman and celebrity spokesperson for the Disabled American Veterans Association for four years. And after that four years was over, I had the opportunity to serve in that same capacity for two more years with the uh, the VFW, the Veterans of Foreign Wars. So Any More for Years was that song. It had a little bit more of a response every t- single time that you would perform it than The other songs. I mean, and and that's that's hard to gauge sometimes. But without a doubt, that song went over very well every night. And then a few years back, I released a song called "Great Day to Be Alive." Rice cooking in the microwave. (laughs) Let's go, let's go. And that song has rapidly become. And it's it's funny to me how all that happened because anymore, that was a number one record. That was a big record. When we released A Great Day, that song did not go number one. It was, I, I don't I don't remember if it was top ten or not, but if it was, it barely was. So from that side of the success, if you le- use that to gauge it, it wasn't nearly as successful as anymore. And it seemed like it took a long time for that song to really catch on. But once it did, I mean, man... Even, even audiences that might not be as familiar with my music as, as they are with other people, more, more, uh, younger artists, newer artists. Man, when that song comes up, they stand on their feet <laughs> and they sing every line. They <laughs> sing it louder sometimes than I do. And it's, that's, that's a great, great feeling, man.
0: It's a great that, song. I'll tell you is. something funny. Travis. So, I have a group of buddies that are equipment guys in the SEC. Yes. They're my some of my best friends in college football. And every Saturday morning we have a big group text and and we send each other notes, you know, have a great day today, good luck in your room. every single Saturday. One of us sends this is like 15 dudes. One of us sends a meme of you with I got rice cooking in the microwave. <laughs> And it's just awesome to me, man. like it's just awesome. that is an awesome song. It well, just makes you feel good. It's an
2: inspirational song It's a great message. and the guy that wrote it, daryl scott,
0: um solo write, right, yeah, yeah Probably. he wrote it by himself. he's made some paper. he's
2: incredible incredible writer, but he was laying flat on the floor. He just had hurt his back and he was laying flat on the floor couldn't couldn't lay anywhere couldn't sleep anywhere else couldn't get up couldn't move around and he said he was laying on the floor and he woke up one morning and all of a sudden he didn't have pain anymore and he said he, as soon as he opened his eyes up he looked up and he saw the sun coming through the through the window and he he wrote the song based off of that and it just it connects with people it the thing i hear the most from fans is the song is it's an inspiration and a lot of people say they'll they'll write me or they'll text me or or whatever and they'll say you know we use that as our wake up song every single morning that's our inspiration to get up out of bed and get the day started it's going to be a great day to be alive told y'all
0: it was good. We'll get right back to Travis Tritt in just a couple minutes. But listen, some of y'all struggle to sleep. And the reason y'all struggle to sleep is because your bed's not as comfortable as it could be. And that means you haven't tried Bowling Branch sheets. You need to do it. They're the softest, most comfortable sheets in the whole world and the only bedding loved by three U.S. presidents. Three presidents. And for a limited time, you can get their luxury flannel bedding to keep you cool sleepers warm, and because they breathe, keep the warm sleepers cool. Shipping's always free with Bowl and Branch. You can try them out for 30 nights risk-free, and right now you get $50 off your first set of sheets at com with the promo code Marty. Get $50 off at com promo code Marty. That's B-O-L-L branch dot com code M A R T Y and with that let's get back to my interview with Travis Tritt. Here's the second half on Marty Smith's America. Back to I'm gonna be somebody real quick too. Sure, that's another one of those songs that whether it's athletes or artists or I mean doc anybody like anybody who comes from a humble type of beginning yeah. and ends up being that person to other people right being yes. that vision of getting there when people said damn it you can't do it yeah exactly and i'm going to go do it mm-hmm. i can't imagine the stories of people approaching you with the impact of that song on them.
2: oh yeah is, is there any one or two that the biggest one i'll, I'll tell you is not long after we released that song we we're out on tour and my tour manager said um he got a phone call, and he said, um, "They say this is Dale Earnhardt's office calling." And I said, "Bullsh*t. <laughs> that ain't that, that ain't that ain't what's going on. He ain't calling me." He said, "Well, they say it's him." So I said, "Let me have that phone." So they said, "Yes, can you hold for Dale Earnhardt?" And I said, "Who is this really?" <laughs> He said, no, this is this is Dale Earnhardt. He, he wants to call you and talk to you. So, sure enough, I recognized his voice anywhere. And he said, hey, man, it's Dale. He said, I just wanted to call you and tell you how much that song, I'm going to be somebody, means to me. He said, I loved it first time I heard it. And he said, I'm playing that song for my son now because I'm trying to let him know this is how you become successful in whatever it is that you want to do. You have to, you have to just stand up and say, I'm going to be somebody. One of these days, I'm going to break these chains. He said, so I'm using that as a, a tool to teach him. And He said his son at that time. And I didn't know exactly who that was. You do now. Way back Way back when, but I know exactly who that is now. (laughs) So it was, uh, and I heard numerous other people. Uh, Tracy Lawrence, country music star. As soon as I met him, as soon as he came on the scene, just a few years after I did, he came up to me. uh, We were doing an awards show together. And he came up to me and he said, I want you to know this. He said, you don't know this, but I want you to know it. He said, you played a show somewhere, I think Arkansas, someplace. He said, and I was standing on the front row in front of the stage, and I was trying to make my mind up about whether or not I wanted to come to Nashville and try to pursue a a career in the music industry. And he said, I was struggling with it and wrestling with it every day. And he said, when you got to that song in the set, And you sang, I'm going to be somebody. He said, my fist was up in the air, and I was singing it back to you just as hard. And that made my mind up right there. (laughs) Hell yes, I'm going to Nashville, and I'm going to be somebody just like you. And he did.
0: He sure did.
2: So anytime you can find songs like that that inspire people, man, what a gift. you know?
0: It's an unbelievable gift. And I've already kept you too long. I just got a couple more. Not at all. So that kind of group that came in with you, mm-hmm. very few foursomes, fivesomes have had that kind of sweeping impact on the industry the way that you guys have. I think it was you, A.J., Garth was in that group. Me,
2: Garth, Alan Jackson, Clint Black.
0: Yeah. Good God.
2: We were the class of 89. Yeah.
0: Insane. How would you define the impact that you guys had?
2: Well, first of all, right off the bat... I know that in 1987 that the sales of country music albums had dropped dramatically from what it had been. It had a tremendous resurgence in the mid eighties when Randy Travis, George Strait, Strait, Reba McIntyre, Ricky Skaggs, when they came out and it shot up. And then it, went back down pretty dramatically and we increased it I I don't remember exactly what the figures were but it it more than doubled Wow! in just a few short months and every single one of us in that group along with several others but from that point on from 1989 on every single one of us in that group did not release a single album throughout all of the 90s that was not at least a platinum album, one million sales, and most of them were double, triple platinum albums. That was unheard of in this town prior to that. So it just goes to show you, if you deliver what the people want, what people want to hear, you know, there's a lot of people out there that are not being fed what they want to hear. And obviously we came along at just the right time when traditional country music had made a resurgence after going more to a pop side for years through Randy Travis and some of those other people that I just mentioned, George Stray. But it made a resurgence and that was the stuff that all these younger people were listening to but they also loved Leonard Skinner the Rolling Stones Kiss they grew up listening to that stuff too so we were kind of able to bring those audiences in to listening to our kind of music more than they had ever listened to it before and it just it all of us being in that concentrated short period of time in in 1989 I think that made the impact stronger, and uh, we all got to reap the benefits of it. So we all had a chance to ride on top of a wave that we all, in our own little way, helped to create.
0: It was so beautiful. It's like I'm 43. Y'all are the soundtrack of my youth. I mean, uh, that my whole high school years into my college years, that group right there. Well, see, that is, is so important to my growth as a person. Yes. Because that was what I, you guys, you were painting pictures for me in my life. Yes. If that makes sense. Sure, absolutely.
2: And I think a lot of the people, I I have people come up to me all the time these days. And it really, it really kind of takes me back or shocks me when when I hear them say it. But I think, a lot of the younger people, and when I say younger, I'm talking about your age. and I'll take and, it. And down, because <laughs> I'm a good bit older than you. But the fact is, is that I think a lot of audiences, a lot of people that grew up listening to our music, they look at us, they look at artists like me and Garth and Alan and Clint and Vince Gill and all of us the same way that all of those people that I just mentioned, including me looked up to Merle Haggard and George Jones and Johnny cash and Jerry Reed and all those guys that were, they were the staple of our, they were the soundtrack to our young lives. So think uh, about
0: what you just said. Like think about what you just said. That is an amazing Testament to the impact because if somebody was going to do a Mount Rushmore, those guys that you said, Cash, Waylon, yes. Merle, yes. George Jones. You're talking about Rushmore, absolutely. And for for my generation, the, the that's what you that that's what you just said, and you're right.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean that's accurate. Well, it's, it's when I get together and I'm drinking beers with my buddies.
2: Yes, well,
0: that's what we're playing. We're playing y'all.
2: That's what that's what we wanted. That's what we wanted. That's y'all were the people that we were making that music for. You know? And so I grew cool. up I grew up in, in it was kind of a rural part of Georgia at, at the time, Marietta, not very rural but a lot more rural than it is now. And all the people that I knew, all the people I grew up around, all the people that I interacted with were hard working, blue collar, normal people, you know. They liked to hunt. They liked to fish. They liked sports. They liked all of those different things, the same things that I liked. So I grew up knowing exactly who those people were because I was one of them. Still am to this day. And the fact is is that those the music was made to move me first – and hopefully if you can move yourself, you can move other people. So it's, it's, but more than anything else, to look back over the career now and see how, just how much of an influence we had. More than anything else, Marty, it's humbling to me. Uh, I just, I can't believe that, first of all, that I was lucky enough to be blessed with, a certain amount of talent and then lucky enough to be able to take that talent out and to sing it for people and, and record it for people and make people feel just good about their whatever it is they're doing or make them reflect on their lives or have it playing in the background every single day every in the every important moment. You know, first time that you go on a date. First time you drive a car. First time, you know, you do all these different things. There's always a first time. And I know for a fact, personally, I know exactly what was playing in the background every single one of those occasions. I do too. So to be able to know that some of my music has been played in those important moments for people all over the world is just man, it's like makes my head explode. It's awesome.
0: You know? Alright, I'll get you out of here on this. I've took up your whole day. And it's kinda exactly what you're saying, and I know you got a lot more music left to play. You got a lot more people left to impact. So legacy's a hard question. It's a hard thing to discuss in the moment. What do you hope? What do you hope your legacy is?
2: I hope that people would say that the music that I did touched their hearts, touched their lives in a very special way, and that I never disappointed anybody, <laughs> never disappointed anybody, never disappointed my fans because that would that would absolutely – be the last thing in the world that i would ever want to do is disappoint anybody that is a fan because they've given me so much and i just want to just try to give it back well this sure as hell didn't disappoint me
0: i can't (laughs) i mean i can't thank you enough man it's one of the joys of my life to get to spend this time with you and learn and well my pleasure brother just fellowship with you
2: thank you so much for for all the positive comments on social media and and, of course, I had a chance to meet you when we were up at the Derby earlier this year, and that was a that was a thrill. But thank you so much. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: I don't know what part of that interview meant the most to me or stood out the most to me. I just kind of sat there with a grin on my face the whole time. Travis, I,
1: I, I hope that you looked at Laney that way when she walked down the aisle as much as you looked at him there, <laughs> because the look on your face—I mean, uh, so I don't do too many interviews where we're in person—but my God, I have a photo of you and you're staring at him like you got a little crush on some schoolgirl. It was—it was something else, Marty.
0: Yeah, I fanboyed a little bit, and damn it, I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to, and
1: I'll tell you what my favorite part was—it's the fact that we were sitting in a building doing an interview that he thought he would never belong to.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and and I love that it was Waylon Jennings who really gave him the affirmation and the confirmation that his way was the right way. Don't let somebody else define you. Don't let somebody tell you you're doing it wrong because you're doing it the way that you know it should be done for you. And that is Waylon Jennings. And that is Travis Tritt. And that is Eric Church. That's the people that meant the most to me in terms of the words that they sing and in a lot of cases write. Those are the three. That's my. That's three of my Mount Rushmore guys right there. And I thought it was so cool, too, to, to learn. Like, I'm a Tracy Lawrence guy. I'm going to see Tracy Lawrence with all my buddies in the SEC and your boy, Pan Tony We're going to see Justin Moore. Tracy Lawrence is opening for Justin Moore on this next tour. And we're going to see that show together as a group. And boy, does it get rowdy.
1: I was going to say I would reach out and see if we could do an interview before him, but I don't know if you would be in Interform interview shape for that. So I I might wait.
0: It is a small-town throwdown that is we look forward to every year. And in fact, we're going to take a couple trips this year. But... I love the fact that 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 not only did Tracy Lawrence have that experience at one of Travis's shows, he got the opportunity to tell Travis that he had that experience. He's got his fist up in the air and he's pumping his fist and he said, by God, I'm going to be somebody. And he went and did it. And, and we need to have Tracy on here. Like that guy's catalog too is awesome. And his whole story is crazy. So, what an amazing day for me. And I'm so grateful. Travis was very per- persistent in running down this interview. And thank you to Christy Watkins, Travis's publicist for agreeing to let us do it. And, and certainly for Travis. And yeah, when he walked, like when he walked in a room, it was, it was cool. We were in this back room and it was awesome. Uh, the, yeah, they uh, gave us
1: like room. our own dressing room to do the interview.
0: The Opry has, I think it was nine or ten kind of locker rooms, and I don't want, like, it, it's it's a really nice locker room. And then in the back of those, there are the suites that have gorgeous leather chairs and, 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 and photographs throughout Opry history on the wall and a little kitchen for the artists so that they have a place to hang out.
1: It felt like Augusta almost.
0: It kind of did. Yeah, it kind of did. I think that's a fair comparison because of the reverence. You can feel that reverence for the history in the air. And I, I agree. I would, I would take that comparison to the bank. That's a good one. And so he walks in and was so kind and was excited to do the interview. I'm telling you, I still have probably 20 questions, 30 questions that I could have. That I could have dove into. I didn't even get the chance to ask him really about what it was like for him during the climb and, and how all of that changes for you and what the impact on your life is when one day you're just trying and the next day you're the guy. And maybe someday we'll do a second half. Uh, I certainly have enough questions and, uh, and whatnot that that it would be warranted.
1: I'm just glad that you're still talking to me after um, Tuesday night.
0: Yeah. So I went to Nashville on Monday afternoon because I went bow fishing on the Cumberland River in the middle of the night with Academy Sports and Outdoors. We did a shoot, a bow fishing shoot. We're on the Cumberland River underneath the Vietnam Veterans Bridge Broadway is a hundred yards away. There's guys up playing in the bars a hundred yards from us and we are slaying these fish. So I go there Monday night. That's about the most fun you can have with your clothes on. And then I had great anticipation for Tuesday. I get to the Opry. You just don't really know, you know, kind of what to expect, but I could not stay. For the show that night, it was an awesome initiative. It was the Opry Goes Pink for breast cancer awareness. And it was Travis Tritt, obviously. And it was Luke Bryan and it was Joe Diffie and it was Sarah Evans Oak Ridge and it was boys. the Oak Ridge boys. And I would have, uh, I would have, I would have gladly given up like a pinky toe, maybe even two of them in order to stay and see those shows because they played back-to-back shows that night. And Travis got to stay. So floor's yours. I want you to describe your experience at the Grand Ole Opry.
1: Well, I was sitting there talking with Travis Tritt's people, and they're like, well, he's out about to go do a sound check. Go out there. I'm like, all right. So I go out there, and I'm just sitting back there, literally watching him just do sound check, going through the songs and taking it all in. There's nobody else out there. And then I'm texting you, and you go, if he plays I'm going to be somebody, I might disown you. Well, what I didn't tell you in the text message is I told you two of the songs that he did. Well, I didn't tell you that he actually did I'm going to be somebody in the sound check. <laughs> I waited until he performed it, and I took a video. And actually, for people that are with the artist, there's a couple church pews on stage. And so that's where I was sitting for the concerts was on the stage. And so then I took a video of part of I'm going to be somebody and sent it to you, and I, I thought – I might get like a middle finger or like I'm getting a new producer. We're done because I could, I could, I could see how bad you wanted to stay.
0: I really did. But, and Travis uh, even told
1: me that. So after the sound check, he saw me, goes, I I wish you could stay for the concert. Oh no, I I am staying. Marty had to leave. So he goes, well, make sure you send some photos and videos to rub it in.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm so glad you got that experience. Yeah. I would love to have had that experience, but listen, man, uh, Someday you'll understand what it's like to be a dad when right. I get home. And and Laney was uh the next morning at like four AM, Laney and Cameron left because Cameron had his eighth grade trip to Washington DC.
1: I love that that's still a thing. I never did it, but my brother he did that when he was in eighth grade and I'm glad that we that's did, still like a thing.
0: When I was in seventh grade we did Colonial Williamsburg. And I like I was saying this to Cameron, like he was bored as hell on the on the trip. And I would love to go do the trip he just did. Because we, as a kid, you don't care about history, man. You don't care one damn iota about history. You just want to hang with your buddies and eat. And, you know, when you're in eighth grade, you want to look at that little girl you like. You don't care about what got us here. And as you age, you, like my... My appreciation for US history and world history for that matter has exploded in the last five or ten years. It's I'm reading all this stuff like right now I'm infatuated with this HBO doc or it's, it's not a documentary, that's the wrong word, like dramatic miniseries about Chernobyl, about the nuclear I just started that disaster at Chernobyl.
1: I started that uh when I was flying to Nashville.
0: Yeah, me too. I've started it on a plane as well, and it really fills in some blanks. And not only that, it that triggered me to go study Chernobyl. Like I've watched a couple documentaries on YouTube, laying in a hotel bed in Starkville, Mississippi. It, it sends you down or a rabbit.
1: It sends you down a rabbit hole.
0: It sure does, because I read a New Yorker magazine review of that HBO miniseries that. There's some things like like any dramatic miniseries or series or movie. Some things are like it's kind of based on a true story, you know. Some things are are un- unbelievably uncanny accuracy, and then there's these other things that were so far off the reservation that you just can't like it. it, it for for history people, they're like, no, that's not accurate. That couldn't have happened here. Whatever. But for folks like me who were ignorant to exactly what happened, how, why it happened, how it happened. I was 10 years old or nine years old when that happened. You weren't even born yet, right? Were you born in 86? 88 is when I was born. Okay. So you weren't even born yet. And, and so I was born in 76 and I think I was nine years old when it happened. And so it was, it's just fascinating to me. And they build these characters, which is always so important when you're putting a plot together and, I'm I'm loving it. But when I was Cameron's age, when I was in 8th grade, I couldn't have given two dams about any of that. And now I just want to consume it all. I have so many books that I am about to dive into, including this might be a brown nose moment, but I don't really care. I'm about to jump into uh Robert Iger, our, you know, Disney CEO. I'm about to jump into his book and his path. Travis, you need to get him on the party's Miss America. He's not doing anything, is
1: he? I'll put that on the list. You, <laughs> you, you don't, but I don't think people understand how many times I heard you mention, I want Travis Tritt. And there's not like, like, you know, how long that one took. So yeah, just pile. It took on, what, six months? Something like that. So let's just pile on, you know, let's just throw, you know, one of the most powerful men, you know, and are ultimately the, chief you know of everything that we do here let's just
0: i run travis right like and and it's funny because the way that i operate i will just get like triggered that i want to talk to somebody and all hours of the night and day i'll send pop travis a text i want this guy but it's
1: but it's not just one like long it's like five small little texts yep like the way that Marty talks with his tangents, that's how he texts too.
0: Mm -hmm. It sure is. By the way, speaking of the way I talk, I want to get into a little bit of a tangent real quick too. It, it amazes me. And it's more and more and more that people actually believe I'm faking this. I'm considering, I have videos and Lainey, Lainey has my, so my cousin Jim Ed Wills is in the movie business out in Los Angeles. He's a editor and he's a just brilliant mind and I love him so much. He has a very unique perspective on the world that when I talk to him, I get smarter every time. And I see things in a, in kind of a different way than he does. He's younger than me. He's around your age, uh, Travis's age. And anyway, he took so many of our, VHS home videos from when we were kids because our moms are sisters. Uh, and he put them on DVD so that we could have them forever. And he sent this clip and Lainey has this clip of me when I'm nine years old and it's Christmas time and I am like a drunk bee in a hamster cage.
1: Yes, Lainey, send that video to me, please.
0: I am bouncing around the room, but here's the point. When I start talking, my accent right now is so much less Appalachian than it was then, and I, I kind of, I kind of figure that's because of television. I've I've learned to enunciate words a little better than I used to.
1: Oh yeah, when we're just but, out having like a drink, it's so much stronger.
0: I have no G's. All right. I barely have any T's. I mean, I don't finish words when I'm with my buddies and especially when I'm with my buddies back home. But I wish y'all could hear them talk. I wish y'all could hear like it makes my buddies back home laugh their tails off that people think I'm faking like faking this. And it's I'm eventually I'm going to just throw that video out there. No caption or nothing. Well, I might have a caption. I might, I might be like, like, look, here's, here's your proof. Travis hiring can be a slow process. It really can. It can take forever to find a candidate you want. Cafe Altura's COO Dylan Miskowitz, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company. He was really struggling to find qualified applicants, so he switched to ZipRecruiter because ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It goes and finds them for you. It's technology identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job, and therefore you have a qualified candidate immediately almost. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter, and he was so impressed with how quickly he had great candidates. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the ones that were the most relevant. That's how Dylan found his new director of coffee in only a matter of days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter find that candidate immediately. See why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of every size. Try ZipRecruiter for free. $0. 0 cents at ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Marty. ZipRecruiter.com slash M-A-R-T-Y. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Uh That's the Marty Smith's America podcast, volume 77. Thank you so much to Travis Tritt for taking his time to sit with us at the Opry and share his life. And hopefully we'll get to do a second installment. I just—it was so fulfilling for me. Great job, Travis. Getting Travis, and uh, now you have some homework to go get uh, Mr. Iger, and we expect uh, you to make make sure that you get that done.
1: Is there anybody else that you would like to that we could just add to the list? Oh
0: yeah, you know me—I got a whole list. You got a whole list of people that I'm trying to get on here. Uh, thanks so much to Dan Levitard and Stu Gotts and Mike Ryan and everybody involved in the Levitard and Friends Podcast Network for having us within it. That's huge, huge for us. Thank you to our sponsors, Quip, Bowling Branch, and ZipRecruiter. They help keep this thing free for y'all's consumption, and that's awesome. I can't wait to get my toothbrush, my sheets, and my free job in the mail anytime. Travis, uh I'm still waiting on that watch. Remember that watch?
1: I do. I yeah, do. Yeah, I ain't got a watch yet. I told
0: you, your next birthday. Man, I don't have any watches yet, but I know I got, I got some sheets coming. I got a new toothbrush coming. That's good. Uh, really appreciate. I had the opportunity when we were in Louisiana and Baton Rouge this week, I spent some time with first responders and had the opportunity to thank them for what they do for the communities, man. That, that's the kind of group that we don't appreciate enough until we need them. And then when we need them and they're immediately there and they're doing their job and they're saving lives and they're impacting lives. Then all of a sudden we have tremendous respect and I'm so grateful for our first responders, our policemen and women, our firemen, uh, the the public servants, teachers who are impacting these communities every single day. And I appreciate our military all over the globe for keeping our nation free. We are so grateful for that. Y'all have a great week and I appreciate y'all listening so much. Please send us feedback. Please send us feedback at Marty Smith ESPN on Twitter and Instagram and let us know what you think. Subscribe, rate and review. Go, go do that, man. Go to iTunes and subscribe, rate and review. Let us know what you think and maybe some people that you want to hear from. So have an awesome week. Thank you. That's Marty Smith's America volume 77. See you all next time around.